everybody. Thanks very much for tuning in. You're listening to the Happy Market Research Podcast. My guest today is Steve Kanscheit, founder and CEO of Humantel. Founded in 2020, Humantel conducts large-scale longitudinal studies designed to uncover hidden motivations of consumers, including feedback from over 100,000 people across 50 countries per channel per year. Prior to founding Humantel, Steve has held senior research positions at Latitude Research, Universal Music Group, Showtime Networks. Additionally, he has founded Three Group, an independent marketing and brand consultancy leveraging research, and has operated in that company as a CEO for 11 years. Thank you, Steve, for joining me on the Happy Market Research Podcast today. Thank you, Jamin. It's a pleasure to be here. This message is brought to you by Displayer. How much of your analysis and reporting time is spent doing manual tasks? All that cutting and pasting, formatting, checking for mistakes, redoing work, using too many tools, and trying just to figure it all out. Try Displayer today. It's software that automatically does the painful tasks for you. Thousands of companies already use Displayer to cut their analysis and reporting time literally in half. I use the platform, I love it, and I know. Get a demo and a free trial at displayer.com slash happy, spelled D-I-S-P-L-A-Y-R dot com forward slash happy. This episode is brought to you by SurveyMonkey. Almost everyone is taken at surveys, but did you know that SurveyMonkey offers complete solutions for market researchers? In addition to flexible surveys, their global audience panel and research services, SurveyMonkey just launched a fast and easy way to collect market feedback with seven new expert solutions for concept and creative testing. With built-in customizable methodologies, AI-powered insights, and industry benchmarking, you can get feedback on your ideas from your target market in a presentation-ready format, by the way, in as little as an hour. For more information on SurveyMonkey's market research solutions, visit surveymonkey.com slash market research. That's surveymonkey.com slash market research. Like to start out with a little bit of context. Tell us about your parents and how they informed what you're doing today. It's uh, it's it's funny that was, that's where you started when I was mentioning to colleagues what we were going to talk about. They, they've heard this story from me many times. I have always said to my mother that whatever I do, uh, they are my partners, right? And my parents are pretty interesting people in the sense that both of them were high school dropouts, sort of prepared themselves for more difficult lives than they perhaps needed. But they were smart incredibly hardworking. And in a lot of ways, they were hustlers long before their time. The thing that I think that was most impactful for me is my father was a middle management guy in the 80s, around the time here in the US when a lot of middle management got let go. And I remember how he had you know, earned his way to a pretty good position where he could be proud of, and then that got taken away in the blink of an eye. And a colleague of his moved away and opened a deli. And we were talking about it one day, and I was a teenager at the time. My father said to me, you know, if I had any balls, I'd open a business of my own. Uh, and for whatever reason, that moment stuck with me. And I think that's what drives me a lot in, in what I do. That particular story about your father is huge, especially as an adolescent, processing your dad, recognizing his failure, which in a lot of ways, we kind of think of our parents as sort of these like fallible individuals. And then providing the specific 
guidance of what he wished he would have done or was doing at that particular point. And then associating the risk with actually having a job or the lack of control with actually having a job versus this perception of master of your own destiny that can exist as a startup or as an entrepreneur. Oh, yeah, absolutely. This is now the third business that I've either built or scaled up. And to be perfectly blunt, this is without question the single most difficult thing I've ever done in my life. At an age, I just turned 50, so at an age when most people are starting to coast into their sunset, I decided to blow up an existing company, blow up an existing model, and double down on an idea myself in the future. And it's been the longest, hardest uphill climb I've ever been on. But every day, recognizing that what I'm doing is is demonstrating a mindset for my own children that I think my father would be proud of is a huge driver in my journey. One of the people that I admire is a well-known investor out of the Silicon Valley has this famous quote, there are no failed companies, there's only failed teams. How does that play into human tell as you kind of reformed, or I should say kind of created this new entity, you know, how much did the actual composition of the team go into what it is that you're delivering to or creating and then delivering into the market? The team itself is huge. And I'd say over the past nine months of bringing this idea together, actually closer even to a year, I've gone through a lot of different kind of people. And I think that as we go through our own journeys as entrepreneurs and leaders, uh, identify with different kinds of people. And I think early on in your journey, you, you try and find people or you naturally find people who are cut from a similar cloth as you. But you learn as you go on what does and what does not work. The team that we've assembled now has very much defined who we are and what we've become and where we will, we will go. But I had a completely different team nine months ago. And part of the reason that I had to shut down the business that I had was we just needed different people. So who we are as a group and why we're here absolutely defines who we are. I mean, that's emotionally a, a difficult process for all parties. I don't think that people really appreciate either side of that, but in, in truth, unless you've gone through it. But as a founder CEO, fellow founder CEO, you know, changing your team materially, especially at the executive level, it's like brain surgery. I mean, it's really hard. And then identifying talent and then bringing them in, it's almost like the devil you know scenario is better than what you might actually, the angel you might get. It's just a, a lot of risk. What sort of went into your thesis as you were thinking about who to bring on to Humantel? Well, you know, it is really hard and you always have these moments where you say, okay, that's the missing piece of the puzzle, right? And you feel like, okay, now I have what I need. And then six weeks later, you identify, okay, here's the next gap. Or maybe this person didn't, didn't meet that expectation. And I think that's actually part of the fun. I think as an entrepreneur, the challenge that you have is you are so, as an individual, so individually invested in what you're doing that you can't process that the people around you aren't as invested. And I think when you're younger and you're coming out on this journey, it feels very much like, hey, we're all in this together. And everybody, everybody is, has as much investment as I do, but that's just not at all true. And part of the journey of maturation that I've gone through over the last year in particular, launching Humantel, is understanding that people are here for different reasons. They have different motivations. And 
they're not going to share the same intensity as you do. And that in and of itself is a massive learning that I think we all individually need to learn. So give us some context. Tell us, give us that kind of the elevator pitch of human tell. And then I'd like to back into the origin story. Absolutely. The elevator pitch is a long one. I hope it's a long ride, but I'm going to do my best to make it tight for our conversation here. Effectively, what human tell is, is a sharing economy approach to primary research. We made a great living for a long time conducting tons of explorations into why people do things. The challenge that the industry faces and the challenge, frankly, decision makers face is that decisions are made so quickly now that you often don't have time to look around at the why. So what we've done is we've taken an exploration into why people do all different things in their lives, fielded it on a massive level, and then we share that information with our subscribers. So it's, it's effectively conducting the world's largest research studies into why people do things and then sharing that in, in much the same way that a sharing economy uh, does with all sorts of other things. You know, the easiest example of this is human tell is to market research as Airbnb is to travel. So give us a glimpse into some of the insights that you're garnering. I mean, obviously the the size, the the base size or the or the sample frame completely uh, provides this like breadth of richness, so that you're able to really, I'd imagine, drill down to very niche segments that otherwise maybe you know not have a large enough base size to actually have a quantifiable or measurable point of view on getting into the why. But can you describe or give us an example of some hidden truth that is coming out of the data? I'll give you a few answers to that. One of the hidden truths that's coming out of our data, if you look at the sport channel, it's, it explores all the dynamics of being a fan, the why behind the sport experience in terms of why you connect with an athlete, why you connect with a sport, how social media activities impact you, barriers, etc. We've currently fielded that study with 26,000 people in 11 countries. And one of the biggest challenges that we have as we look at the data, and you're right, there's an enormous depth and possibility of stories in this. We have 250 variables times you know, 100,000 people. You're talking about 25 million data points manipulated in any way. But one of the, the most comforting, I think, yet frustrating truths is that there is more that unites us than divides us. In many ways, the motivations for somebody in South Korea are fundamentally the same as they are here. What's fun is that, and this sort of gives the data face validity, you see ideologies bubble that are sort of consistent with our perceptions of, of, those, of different cultures. But fundamentally, I think that the greatest thing that I've seen is that there's more that unites us than divides us. I mean, so that, that's encouraging from a human perspective. Um, and from a simplicity perspective, but I kind of go back to, it feels to me like one of the big value props here is that I can get granular level insights. Whereas if I do a base size of a thousand or 10,000, you know, I might not be able to get that same, have that same level of discoverability inside of like how to market to that particular niche. Is that sort of the, the one of the compelling reasons why you felt like it was important to get such a large base across your 250 some odd variables? Well, part of the driver for that was uh, comes from a conversation I had with our friend uh, BV Pradeep over at the Unilever, right? Brands are tasked with thinking globally and acting locally. So the need to understand how 
a an individual in New Zealand uh, feels is just as important as it is to understand how uh, an individual in the U.S. feels. I sort of I go back to that that moment in Pulp Fiction where Sam Jackson and John Travolta are talking about Amsterdam, and John Travolta says, "You know, the funny thing is, it's the little differences. Those little differences are the different are are what can change a relationship with a consumer from feeling hand or." or forced to authentic, right? And as we shift into this world where brands have a pretty high responsibility to create genuine relationships with consumers, understanding nuance is critical. And having the ability to explore that nuance at your fingertips so you can act and you can bring this into the DNA of your own organization is really important. So there are differences. Oftentimes they're dramatic. I don't want to understate that, but in a lot of ways, that little bit of a that little bit of an edge that's going to give a brand uh, some leverage over their competitor. And of course, the Pulp Fiction reference was the difference between Le Whopper. I think is that right? Uh, I'm trying pounder. to remember the quote. <laughs> quarter pounder and the Whopper. Yeah, I don't know. I, that's right. Quarter. Yeah, yeah. I didn't go into Burger King. That was a great, great quote. So why did you decide to start Humantel? I mean, you had three group, you ran that successfully for 11 years. Why the personal disruption? There are myriad forces that drive that decision, right? One is very personal. You hit the age of 15 and you look around and you go, is this all I was meant to do, right? Did I do something that matters? And for better or for worse, I care deeply about our craft, what we do, the value of it, the value of giving a voice to people. And I, on the one hand, didn't feel like I was done contributing to that. Three was successful. We changed a lot from a methodological standpoint. We changed even more from a delivery standpoint of, of making market research accessible to a wider audience. We accomplished a lot of really good things that got copied by a lot of the big firms. But I wasn't quite done yet. Pair that with seeing myself the increased anxiety among my client partners, the changes in the way decisions were made, and a recognition that the model that we've had, which really is not different from the way it was done in the 50s, right? We've moved from a clipboard to the phone to the phone. But the model is fundamentally the same, and it just didn't make the pace of decision-making today. So could I continue to make a nice living doing good work for good people? Probably. Could I take an industry and try and give it a, a bit of a kick in the pants and push it forward? It would seem as if we've done that with Humantel based on some of the early responses that we were getting from folks. That's great. So you use your existing customers as a sounding board for obviously identifying the market need uh, and then seeing if they were willing to subsequently pay for it, right? And now, you know, I believe it's April 4th, you're releasing, you're actually opening doors. Is that... For, for subscribers. Is that sort of the sequencing? Yeah, we've spent about nine months figuring out what meets the market. And I can tell you that as an entrepreneur, you tend to fall in love with your ideas and people around you will tell you how brilliant you are and it creates its own echo chamber. So getting out there and having those conversations is really your own version of market research. And there's been some adjustments to who we are and how it's delivered and how we're, how we're doing what we do that better meets Perhaps not the way that people are going to work tomorrow, but meets the way people work today. So in a lot of ways, the last nine months of our journey has been a bit of a compromise with the existing market 
and the market that we're trying to create. So yes, we've uh, iterated, 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 spoke, talked, met to try and build something that is interesting, forward-looking, progressive, but also gives people something that is in line with their KPIs uh, today. And yes, we're uh, opening the doors in April. Pretty excited about that to finally be there. Certainly not as quick as we would have liked to have gotten there, that I would have liked to have gotten there. But uh, it's an exciting time for us. It always takes longer. Oh, my it's, God. It's really interesting. It's, it's, yeah. Yeah, it's the, crazy. There's four questions, I think. I think it was Clay Christensen. I might be wrong. In one of his books, um, it might have been. Anyways, you know, one of the B-School books that you need to answer as an entrepreneur if, if you're creating something, one is, you know, is there a pain? Do they know there's pain? Um, you've checked those boxes. Are they willing to pay for the solution? And then will they buy it from you? And it's it's a funny it's funny how all four of those questions need to individually be answered because if you operate on the assumption that like let's say the first you check the first three boxes there's pain they know there's pain and they're willing to pay for it uh, I've seen a lot of entrepreneurs make the assertion that they're going to obviously pay, buy it from me and them not be and then the customer or the market not be willing to buy them from that buy the solution it isn't necessarily the best mousetrap right there's a lot of uh, trust in this digital age that I believe is being undervalued or underappreciated when it comes to enterprise relationships. As it relates with your journey, how did you frame out your answers to, to those four questions? I'm sure you didn't like designate them like I just did out of a book, but how did it play out in real life? Really sloppily. <laughs> I, I think the answer is that, is there pain? I think we all know that there's pain in the market research community. The understanding the why is slow, it's narrow, it's expensive. Market researchers are having their roles compromised every day. Organizations are haircutting things like this every day. So, so many of our clients are really not functioning in ways that are satisfying to them. And so there's pain and they know that there's pain. The solution that we've offered, I think, provides, it checks off a lot of boxes that businesses are hoping to achieve today, right? It allows you to be more agile. It allows research folks to have more of a voice in the conversation at their fingertips, right? You can contribute and drive conversations much more readily with our insights and our data. It allows teams to think more customer-centric, right? Because you have this understanding available to you because you're getting daily content about what it means to be a human being. We all read the trades every day. What we're asking folks to do is spend two or three minutes reading about their customers. That little gesture will hopefully grow to something that allows teams to be more customer-centric, which is a huge, huge priority today. And then the last bit is I think we've effectively, we're closing the gap between insight and action. Right. So often as researchers, we do studies. And by the time we finish the study, it's probably not even relevant anymore. And it's certainly fundamentally different than what we set out to do. By fielding these, these studies, by providing this information proactively and allowing teams in our environment to ideate in real time to break down all those walls, we're closing the gap between insight and action. The last bit of whether or not they're going to... So I know, So we know that there's pain, they know there's pain, and we have a solution for a lot of that pain. The last bit of whether or not they're going to buy it from us is a really fascinating one because I can tell you that when I shut down three, it's a bit like attending your own wake, right? I literally sent an email to all of our clients and saying, you know, on January 2nd, I love you guys, but it's time for us to do something new. 
and you get good luck. You get, I can't wait to see where you're going to lead. You get, oh my God, what the hell am I going to do now? And that leads you to think, okay, whatever I do next, these folks are going to buy it from me. And that is just categorically not the way it works. You know, we're still in the market research space. We've built a new model that requires a great deal of education, but we pivoted 45 degrees from where we were. We have credibility in the space, but the biggest question that I keep getting along the journey is, this is really ambitious. Can you pull this off? And every time we hit a, a hurdle, we keep pushing forward. And we're here and we're actually pulling it off. So I think we have the credibility in the space. And now it's about believing that a small company can, with a small team, can pull off something as massive as what we're trying to do. And we prove ourselves. I'm excited about seeing that press release that you guys drop. It's going to be huge. We'll certainly get behind it the best that the best that we can. You know, I've been I've been thinking that there's this opportunity, especially as it relates with longitudinal studies, for leveraging audio as a insights distribution mechanism. I haven't seen another company actually do that that's in the longitudinal space, but it feels like because this is happening on, you know, it's ongoing research and subscribers may want to consume that content in more of a passive medium, like in their car, in their car or whatever, mowing their lawn or what have you, as opposed to in the traditional report. I'm not saying it would replace it, but maybe somewhat of an augment. Anyway, sorry. There you go. So here's the thing, Jamin, what you're saying is exactly right. Right. And what we've set out to do, in addition to fielding this massive study, is deliver the insights in new ways. We're trying to meet people at, on their terms. We're trying to offer insights in a way that content is consumed today. So there will be white papers, there will be slideshows, but there are also shorter form journalistic pieces. We're hiring, we've brought in journalists. You know, we just had a guy from Vegas do a piece on gambling. Audio, video, a complete multimedia environment is what we're building. So we can deliver content in ways that both meet people on their terms and engage them in, in, and make just the experience of consuming research fun, which, you know, frankly, uh, hasn't existed for quite some time. So 100%. It really hasn't existed. And, and what's funny is I'm seeing the innovation happening, not in the agency side, but in the brand side. So I think it's all, I heard a talk by Allstate and they have an, an agent's website. So you have to be an agent and then you get access to the website. And then in the website, it's basically an, an FAQ on, on the pain points that their customers are going through it by region. So this is like, you know, it's a very big study that they're doing an ongoing basis among their current customers and potential customers. And that website then is informing through video and interactive experience, you know, how this, the agent, the, the person that's doing the sales for the company is able to, you know, relate to their constituents. And I, I thought that was such an interesting, an interesting innovation, especially in context of this old school report writing industry or, or framework. And I, you know, I think that there's, a, there's so much that can happen in the way of adding value to the actual executors or the, the people that are taking action um, inside of the organizations. You know, that, that kind of that, that breathes life into the research and not and humanizes the numbers in a way that really results in action. Yeah, I think for a long time, we just tried to humanize with video clips. If you go back to three group, one of the things, you know, we did was I remember doing a project on trying to understand the horror genre. And 
we challenged ourselves from a methodological standpoint to not just go someplace, but we rented a house and we brought in experts and we brought in, you know, hardcore fans and soft, uh, you know, casual fans. And we actually had the clients stay in the house with us. So we locked ourselves in a house for several days and then brought in people. And that was kind of from a methodological standpoint, fun. And I think we've done a really good job as an industry of making the collection fun. But then we sat down and we thought, well, what can we do next? And we delivered the insights as a graphic novel, a physical hard coffee table book that I can recall walking into the CEO's office and our research was on his bookshelf. I doubt he ever read it, but he was showing it up. That's a great example of how you know an agency can be creative. So there are people that I know that are in jobs inside of the market research industry or customer experience industry, or user experience industry. And they're thinking, should I step out and start my own consultancy, whether it's a single person shop or get some funding and build the next Google for insights? What are three tips that you would give aspiring entrepreneurs? Don't do it as obviously glib. I'm in a, an, an interesting uh, vortex in my career right now. When I started a primary research consultancy, it was a, a, a guy and I, and it was super, super easy. We walked into a meeting. We walked out with two projects. My partner looked at me and he said, this is amazing. And I said, yeah, you know what this means? And he says, yeah, this is going to be easy. And I said, no, it's all uphill from here. It's never going to be that easy. <laughs> it's true. And But that business grew and scaled up quickly. And this turning into a you know, a data plus media plus subscription as a software model has been an incredible, incredible challenge. So I think if you're going to go set up, put out a shingle, that probably is, is going to go as expected. I've seen a lot of people come and go. There's not a lot of challenges in making it happen. I think when you get into what we, whether it's from an MR consultancy or you start drifting into new technology or changing people's mindsets or trying to I mean, we're fundamentally breaking the economic model of the market research community. I think that there are some better lessons, some bigger lessons that people can take away from there. And sometimes I feel like they're things you hear all the time, but they're things that nobody really wants to say to you, like sit you down and go, this is it. The first thing is you got to be willing. I mean, I have literally spent everything I have over the last year to build this, to build a team, to get us to this place. You've got to believe in it. The people who succeed are the people who wake up at three o'clock in the morning and they can't go back to sleep because they're paranoid with, they, you know, they're paralyzed with anxiety. It, you have to be willing to leave it all on the field. It's a level of work and commitment like I have never experienced. The second thing I think is you've got to censor your own press. We live in this culture of everybody being super nice, whether you're a four-year-old playing soccer or a 12-year-old in school or a 40-year-old starting out a new business. Everybody's going to tell you that your idea is brilliant. Everybody's going to love what you do. And if you believe that, you're setting yourself up for, success, for failure. You've got to sit down and, and just call BS on the world and figure out what's going to go wrong next. And then the third thing I think is you just got to get ready to be hugged and kicked in the teeth multiple times every single day. Now, admittedly, the bigger the thing that you're trying to pull off, the harder you're going to get hugged, the harder you're going to get punched in the face. But that's, that's part of the journey. Every time you feel something good, something is going to creep up and just smack you in the teeth when you're not looking. You've got to be ready for that. And I think if you can 
call yourself out on your own BS, if you believe in what you're doing, like it's, it's the only thing that matters. You know, one thing I hear from, uh, as I'm tinkering with the investment crowd, people love the fact that I'm all in on this because, and they say, well, what's your plan B? And I say, I don't have one, right? You, you gotta believe in it that hard because building things is really effing hard. Yeah. So hard. <laughs> it's, it's a hard road. It's a hard road. The second point is the one I want to really dive into. Don't believe the press. It took me 10 years at Decipher to figure that out. I, it was remarkable that every demo I did, people were smiling and telling me how great everything is that I'd built. And then they didn't convert. And there's just such a truth to, especially in the U.S., people want to be kind and they want, to, they want you to feel good even if they don't like what you've done or they're not, they have no intention of using what you've done. And that can create these false signals that convert to over-indexing on a, maybe a flawed platform or a flawed solution that you're bringing to, to the market. Uh, and, and you really have to surround yourself with people that are willing to give you the hard truths irrespective of how it might make you, make you feel because it never is good. And that will save you a lot of, it could save your life in, in all, in all earnest. How did you, how did, how did you get that, that truth lens on what you're building? <laughs> I have a colleague who tells me what's going to go wrong every single day. Every time I walk out of something exciting, she will say, it's not going to work out that way. Um, which is a great, incredibly valuable thing to have on your team. Somebody who understands what you're doing and understands how to knock you down a peg. I can't remember who it was, but I think it's one of the heads of innovation or former heads of innovation at Google. He's got a great little uh, video on YouTube. And I'm sure it's a recurring talk about don't believe anybody, don't believe anybody's words, just believe their wallet. Right? I have literally been, and we've only done a few true sales meetings. You know, we've only really gone down that road, but I have been in meetings where people have spent the first 10 minutes talking about the importance of why and how they're frustrated in their role because they don't have the why and how they need the why to do what they do. And then when it comes time to say yes, they will then say, well, how does it help me do this thing that has nothing to do with why, but is related to my KPIs? And, and I think that that's a recurring pattern. It, it gets back to that idea of being out in the market, doing your own market research. When you ask people to give you money, that is really where the rubber meets the road. Everything that they told you in that moment prior is wonderful, makes you feel good, but it doesn't, doesn't do you any good. And when you ask them to give you money, that's the test. And I also think that in this world that we live in today, where venture capitalists are running around giving everybody money, it almost creates, it's almost like an elevation of the night. Right, you believe it's going to work because this guy with a gajillion dollars gave you five, five fifty thousand dollars. Right, so we keep it's a sort of self perpetuating cycle. But when you get somebody and you ask them to, to stand up for something different and put their own budget and their own signature on it, well, that's that's really where you get the truth lens. And then if you're smart, you say, okay, tell me more, tell me why not. You learn from that, you walk away, you fine tune, and you get better. What do you see as the biggest challenge or one of the biggest challenges that's facing startups today? I think that culturally, 
we value the entrepreneur. We value the, the, you know, the, the American dream, frankly. And you get an enormous amount of input from people in the media that tells you there's a lot of money out there. You're going to be the next Zuckerberg. And it encourages people to take moonshots, which is great, right? You know, in this culture of like, yeah, fail fast, etc. I think that we're on the we're at the precipice of the market shifting, starting to shift away from speculation and getting to substance, right? I think that that's I think we're going to start seeing the, the herd trimming pretty quickly, and the the making money simply to make more money or raising money to raise more money is going to become less and less. And when you're in that environment, I think it creates a greater degree of skepticism. I think the sales pitch for a long time was, hey, we're going to be the next WeWork. And even when I say one of the things that I've said a few times is we are to automobiles what Uber oh, – excuse me. We are to market research what Uber is to automobiles. Well, guess what? Uber hasn't made a dime. I don't want to be attached to Uber or Airbnb or any of these other unicorns that don't make any money. And I think that more and more you're going to see people pushing back on that idea. I think the other part too is – that getting back to the the idea that people want to be nice to you well when you're working with people suppliers etc sometimes contractors maybe even employees you want to believe that they're here to help you but really most people just have their hands in your pocket finding the people who don't want to just take advantage of your idea and i'm not just talking about the vc folks i'm talking about Every contractor you have who tells you how brilliant it is and they're just going to do their part to move it down the line because they believe in you, but they're still getting paid. Finding the people, and I have been fortunate enough over this past year to find some people who are amazingly smart and amazingly in on what we're doing, but there was a lot of going through everybody else trying to just take advantage of the idea. So I think that that's, that's a huge challenge, finding genuine people who believe in you, believe in your idea enough that they're going to put themselves in, in, in it too. They're out there. I found them, but there's a lot of learning to sift through the, the BS to find those folks. Yeah. And there's a, you know, the reason why is, while it's obvious, I'll state it, you know, is that if you have a corporate job, you like your corporate job. Right. I mean, you might complain about it. That's part of the that's part of the joys. But you, know, you don't want to lose it. And anytime you go out on a new supplier with a different uh, some variant of difference, like, you know, the famous quote, nobody ever got fired for hiring IBM. So 10 times more expensive, 10 times slower. Sorry, listeners from IBM compared to the startup that might even have a much better technology solution. But I mean, you know, you got a bunch of PhDs, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, it is the safe bet. You've really got to align yourself with, you know, who are those early adopters or those visionaries inside of the corporations that want to actually, you know, move the needle and find joy and fun in exercising those kind of innovative or entrepreneurial, internal entrepreneurial, I think they're called entrepreneurs, muscles. Um, have you found some early adopters at, at the corporate, so some buyers? Uh, we've got a lot of folks who are interested and ready to go when we launch. Yes. Got it. So you've got some like, they might not have signed a term sheet, but they've said, yes, we're going to sign up for something. 
Yeah. And I, yes. And, you know, and that's why, you know, what I get is a lot of, this is really interesting. Let me know when you're ready to go. So that's why I moved with that question a little bit. Cause I don't really know. Did you get some no's? No, no. Did you get no. any no's yet? Not yet. Yeah. It's so funny. I, I see that all the time where I'll get a lot, high level of interest. And then when it comes down, you know, when it comes down to it, it's like, okay, well, you know, we're not ready yet. Let us know how it goes. <laughs> I got that a lot in the investor community. We just started raising money. I've bootstrapped it this far and have uh, and, and now need to go raise some money to get us through launch. Yeah. I mean, it's raising capital today is way different than it was three years ago. The amount of traction that companies are wanting to see is in the order of half a million dollars of annual reoccurring revenue or ARR. And that's hard to get to that, especially if you're in a like either tech, if you're in a technology based. I mean, think about like the capital expenditure of creating a sample frame of 100,000 people in 50 countries. That's really hard and really expensive. It's so expensive. Then you actually have to do the man hours right behind that and then come up with the. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of capital intensity when you create these businesses. And I feel like at the early stage investors, what was like a series A or even a seed round now, it's gotten a lot harder unless you have proven track record to, yeah. to raise what's, capital. What's nice for us is we've built an incredible leadership team, a proven leadership team, and we're operating in a space that we understand and we recognize that there's a market need for it. So we're at an advantage uh, from that standpoint. But it is a challenge. Um, yeah. and, it's, and frankly, in many ways, it's a distraction, an unfortunate distraction. Right. Yeah, totally. Necessary distraction because it's enabling the business, but it's not adding value to the business in the way of like a new feature or more pe people or more customers, right? It is much more, of, but it, yet it's a, it's a material part of the overhead if, you know, you're in a situation where you need to raise, where you need to raise capital. All right, let's shift gears. Let's get into our, our last question. What is your personal motto? So I wrestled for a while to come up with an answer to that question. Because the stock answer I'm sure you get is, I don't really have one. I just live by be kind and et cetera. Or my motto now is et cetera. So I actually asked a few folks around here what they thought my personal motto would be. And the, the response was, I won't do anything unless I believe in it. And then I'm going to do it all the way. So if you ask me what my personal motto is, the easy words that come to mind are far beyond driven, which for the metalheads in the room is the name of an old Pantera record. In the three group, we used to have a poster on the wall that said, be fucking awesome. The logic was, every, and this is 12 years ago, I think it's been co-opted since, but the logic was everybody wants to be awesome. Well, you know what? You'd be fucking awesome. <laughs> and here in this moment, I think everybody wants to believe they're driven. Well, we need to be far beyond driven. We're an independent company. We are scrappy. We're trying to take on a model that is 70 years old and working with people who are in many ways anxious about their positions and motivated to, as you just pointed out, stay safe. We have to be far beyond driven um, in order to win. I always liken us to you know, we go through the, we just did a, our whole brand exercise. I'll, I'll take a, a bit of a detour, but maybe, maybe it'll be a nice place for you to, to land your conversation, this conversation. I liken us to Sub Pop. 
I grew up in the music business. That's where I started my professional career. And Sub Pop in the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, was like a couple of guys in a garage. And they, they launched a movement, a cultural movement that fundamentally shifted us from the 80s to the 90s. Those guys had no business pulling off what they pulled off. And in a lot of ways, that's how I feel about us. We have no business pulling this off, but damn it, every day we're doing it. Why? Because we want it more, we're smarter, we believe in it, and we're far beyond driven. My guest today has been Steve Kanscheit, founder and CEO of HumanTel. Steve, thank you so much for being on the Happy Market Research Podcast today. This was so much fun. Thank you, Jamin. Everyone else, if you found value in this episode, like I know I did, I hope you'll take time, screen capture, share this on LinkedIn, Twitter, or wherever your social feeds are. Tag us and we'll send you something special. Have a wonderful rest of your day.